Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's completely free. And who doesn't love free things at the moment? Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, we bring you our latest exit interview. I've been sitting down with MPs who've announced they're standing down at the next election to ask, why are you leaving us? This week, former SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford. He talks about being a humble crofter, what it was like trying to deal with Boris Johnson, and delivers his verdict on his political bosses, including Alex Salmon, Nicholas Sturgeon and Humza Yousaf. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, we'll take a look at the news with The Columnists. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And if it's a Monday, we must be saying good morning to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Good morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Uh, right, let's get the cake and the candles out. Uh, the NHS turns uh, uh, 75 this week. And uh, we were just sort of wondering, has it got much to celebrate? You know, everyone always likes to celebrate the NHS. But you've got 650,000 appointments and operations postponed due to uh, strikes. Seven in ten people believe charges for NHS care are on the way uh, because that's the only way to fund it. That's an Ipsos poll for the Health Foundation. Uh, We've got record numbers of people on waiting lists. Even Labour's shadow health secretary, Wes Streeting, was in no mood to celebrate when he was speaking about it on Times Radio last week. The NHS is not the envy of the world. It's a service, not a shrine. We've got to stop thinking of it as a national religion and make sure that it is a, a, a an institution and a system that delivers the best outcomes. And it's got okay. the potential to do that, but it does need reform. And just as only Nixon could go to China, I would wager that only Labour is capable of reforming the NHS. So, Rachel... Um, Rachel... Rachel. Rachel. Uh, yes. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, I think my microphone just went off then. It was fine. I thought, I know what I was doing. pushing the wrong buttons. Uh, you've obviously been looking at the, the state of the NHS for the, the Times Health Commission. Um, what 
do you think we should be celebrating the NHS, you know, in the way that we did with the the, the Olympics or carrying on like it's some, you know, a religion famously, as Nigel also said? Or do we need a much, much more hard-headed approach to it on its 75th anniversary? I think we need a more hard-headed approach, actually. So obviously there is lots to celebrate. There are lots of amazing people working in the NHS. You know, it saved you know, so many lives, all of us will have stories of incredible things the NHS has done for us or our families. But it is a time where this is, should be an opportunity to really think what should it be for the next 75 years if it's going to survive. And I think the big picture is that the world has changed since 75 years ago. So in 1948, the NHS really was all about kind of treating people who are sick, making them better, sending them home. Now it's really about dealing with long-term conditions uh, and people with things like diabetes and heart conditions and lung problems. Um, and there's an increasingly aging population. So the whole nature of the type of condition and sickness that the NHS needs to deal with has changed. And that needs to be much more dealt with at home. There's this sort of obsession with hospitals in both the public and politicians you know they're constantly pledging new hospitals if ever anybody says they want to close a hospital um, there's a riot and a revolt but actually we should be transferring attention and resources into the community and helping people change their behavior so they don't get these many of these long-term conditions and also sorting out social care which was the glaring omission from that workforce plan last week and i should have mentioned rachel you're in japan right now with the uh, health commission what could, what can we learn from the japanese system yeah well it's fascinating i've been at a care home today with robots where you know a mixture of robots that were sort of doing organizing a singing class with the old people and then some another kind of robot that helped people walk so had, there was a sort of like muscle suit that helped elderly people walk then there were kind of muscle suits for the care workers that gave them sort of additional strength to lift the elderly people out of their uh, beds then there were robots that uh, played with people so like a little pretend dog so they weren't allowed pets in this care home but they could have this robotic dog and then there was another one that was particularly helpful for dementia patients who which um they it was a sort of toy seal furry seal that people stroked it was sort of a mixture of kind of really weird and creepy but also quite fascinating and actually there is this absolute crisis coming down the track with the aging population and we've got to do something so that's one thing is not necessarily robots but taking aging seriously and the other is they're doing uh, they've got the lowest obesity rates um virtually in the world so it's how it, they, and they have very strict rules companies have all got to sort of measure their employees waists every year and do, do health checks to make sure that everyone's being as healthy as they can um and partly it's the sort of sushi diet but they've taken a concerted effort to try and make sure that people don't get fat uh, and that's having a real impact on the health service as well uh, what do you think libby should we be celebrating the nhs uh, I, I do wonder whether is is uh west streeting right that only a labor party a labor government can criticize the nhs if, if any tory minister said what west streeting said about the nhs there'd be uproar Yes, I know. I mean, I have my, my most extreme left-wing friend thinks that uh, Rishi Sunak has a secret diabolical plan to sell it all off. 
and release the money in the housing in in, in housing to um, pay his friends, etc., which I think is a nonsense. But I'm fascinated by it. Rachel's piece is great. I love the idea of the muscle suit for carers, having had to help an elderly neighbour back into bed the other day. Uh, you know, that, that, that kind of robotics, I think, is terrific. I'm not sure about the singing classes. But I do celebrate the NHS. I mean, I am programmed by Mother Nature to be dead three years ago. Um, and thanks to the NHS, I am not. I'm, I'm on a boat having a nice time in France. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's done tremendous things, but it needs, I mean, we all need to move on and look at ourselves in every, every way, in every profession needs to do it. Um, and the NHS does get stuck in this sort of political slime of, you know, anything Tories say is evil um, and, and Labour too scared to say anything. The, the other thing that I think is really interesting, Matt, is there is real reason for optimism because of amazing scientists and technology. So partly robotics, can, the, the kind of impact of robotic surgery has been incredible on patient outcomes and the amount of time that you have to spend in surgery, in hospital after surgery. But then also AI is having a real impact on diagnosis. So there's, you know, the, the way in which the machine can now determine whether somebody's uh, got a cancer through in dermatology and mammograms and that sort of thing. And that's really speeding up diagnosis. And then gen- genomics and genetics is also going to allow much more personalized medicine. So there are huge things to celebrate in that way about the future. But I think we mustn't get hung up on the past and the sort of old ways of doing things. We have to look for new ways. Yeah, I think, and 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 actually, maybe this this moment where everything's sort of coming together, possibly with a, a change of government, maybe that is the moment to to change it. Um, I just want to bring you both a little bit of breaking news and get your reaction to this. Um, the uh, a cabinet office investigation has found that the former senior civil servant Sue Gray did break the civil service code as a result of the of her undeclared contact. Uh, between her and the Labour Party. Uh, obviously, this this comes to Keir Starmer was trying to uh, hire as uh, Chief of Staff. Last week, she was cleared by uh, ACABA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, that she could start working as Chief of Staff from September, saying they'd seen no evidence that her decision-making or impartiality was impaired. But, yeah, we've just had a, cab- uh, a ministerial statement through from the Cabinet Office Minister, Jeremy Quinn, saying that uh, an investigation has been concluded. As part of the process, she was given the opportunity to make representations. Sue Gray chose not to do so. But the process led by the civil service found that the civil service code was prima facie broken as a result of her undeclared contact between Ms Gray and the leader of the opposition. The rules and guidance that govern the conduct of civil servants are clear and transparent. It's deeply unfortunate that events have transpired in this way. Um, Libby, should we be worried about this? I mean, there were lots of people within the civil service who, who like Sue Gray, uh, who actually think she might be quite good as a chief of staff, but it's just not brilliant for... When the civil service is under fire constantly, it seems, from certain parts of the Tory party over impartiality, this just adds to the sense of the blob, in inverted commas, being sort of conspired against them. Oh, it feels like such a sort of insider civil service political row with arms being taken up on both sides that... uh, you know, it's just difficult even to contemplate. Yeah, there's a civil service code. It shouldn't be broken. But a matter of who has contact, who talks where to who in this bubble world of Westminster, which embraces both sides of Westminster, uh, I think is, is, you know, it does not strike home with the average voter or the average citizen. I, I think it really doesn't. It, it matters but on, on that sort of refined level and let them sort it out. What do you think, Rachel? 
But I think Libby's right that what matters is whether she's going to be good for the country in terms of running the government. Um, but it doesn't. It's not good to have another whack at the civil servants. Um, and I don't see. I don't know why she didn't declare it. Really, if she wanted to do the job, um, do we know if she's going to do it as a civil servant or whether she's going to be a political appointee? Well, I mean, she'll have to be a political appointee if she's doing it in I a position from will, September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, but she's not going to be uh, a sort of cabinet, a civil servant uh, chief of yeah, staff. Yeah, yeah. And that then, I think it's less important what the civil service inquiry says. Um, but I think what matters is, is she able to stand up to ministers when it comes to it? If she, if she has to, if, so long as she can be impartial in the sense of telling Keir Starmer yeah, when he's yeah. got it wrong... Uh, that's what really matters. And the je- the problem with being seen to be in the pocket is that that looks more difficult. So, so long as she can prove that that's not a problem, uh, then in the end, that's what matters, I think. Well, we should uh, uh, maybe should be able to help out uh, Keir Starmer with attracting middle-aged women because apparently they are the key battleground, the latest key battleground uh, uh, for the election, apparently targeting national trusters, taker-breakers and the Women's Institute. Uh, oh, this is very good for Libby and me. And that women aged forty-five to six, between forty-five <laughs> and sixty-five, are being seen uh, by strategists holding a significant amount of power at the ballot box. Lib Dems have identified two groups they think will decide the so-called blue wall seats. They are Surrey Shufflers and National Trusters. What do you think of that, Libby? Oh, it's this thing, isn't it? It's this extraordinary periodic desire of people inside the Westminster bubble to remind themselves that most of the electorate are not sort of 45-year-old political obsessives. Um, you know, we've had uh, Mondeo Man and Worcester Woman, and now we've got the National Trusters and all the rest of it. These cliched groups, it, it, is, it is just a sort of desperate attempt to make each other remember that not everybody is basically either you know, Keir Starmer or Matt Chorley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the electorate out there is very diverse and has its own views. I don't, I don't rate these, these um, categories at all. What do you think, uh, Rachel? Is it just a way of, of, of political parties being talked about uh, while they actually get on with, with a slightly more complicated bit of targeting? Well, what I think is true is that the public services and the mess that public services are in are going to be a huge issue at the election. And women tend to use public services more. So we did a focus group for the Health Commission with um, people from women from Stevenage. You know, Stevenage Women was another of these names. So we got together a, a group of women and every single one of them, I think, had had some kind of negative experience with the NHS. And they were really worried about the future of the NHS. They still loved it, but they didn't feel it was in safe hands. So that will be a huge issue. Education will be a huge issue at the election. Uh, And women tend to care about those things more, um, rightly or wrongly, wrongly probably. But I I think the other thing is that uh, women uh, were deeply disillusioned and negative about Boris Johnson and the shenanigans over Partygate. I mean, everyone was, but I, the polling, I think, showed that women yeah. in particular had a sort of loathing of that. So that will then also play in. Uh, so in the end, all elections come down to everyone. It's a stupid um, <laughs> thing, isn't it? But, and and but actually, actually are, the really striking <laughs> thing, looking at polling, is that the shifts are pretty even right across 
uh, right across the board. I mean, when we it was a couple of weeks ago now, we looked at the polling of basically comparing town and country, and the Tories were down thirty points everywhere. It's just they were, you know, they were neck and neck with Labour in the countryside and miles behind in urban areas. But actually, the shift does seem to have been pretty universal. So, so actually. Yeah. Sli- particularly when when the L- Labour have got the lead that they have, slicing everything up, slicing and dicing it into daft take a b- people who read Take a Break magazine probably doesn't um, make a huge amount of difference. Rachel, uh, remind listeners they didn't catch it last night. Michael Gove on uh, what I wish I'd kn- knew. Fatima Whitbread, actually. Was it? Michael Gove was the week before. Oh. Yeah, Michael Gove was fascinating as well. I can talk tell you about both of them. Yeah. Michael Gove was absolutely fascinating on his being adopted and how it sort of driven him on in politics, feeling so grateful that he felt he had to repay the love that his parents had shown him, his adoptive parents. Um, And also he's always had this thing about being the lost boys, you know, whether that's education or justice, saving the lost boys. And he sort of admitted, I'd always wondered this, but he said that one of the reasons he was wanting to help them because he could have been a lost boy himself like the lost boys in peter pan who fell out of the pram when the nurse was looking the other way um so and then this week we talked to fatima whitbread the olympian javelin thrower who's turned reality tv star who had just a shockingly awful childhood but was brilliant on how you know everyone suffers adversity the question is how do you deal with it and she's not going to be a victim Rach Sylvester and Libby Purvis there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the exit interview of Ian Blackford. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We've already said... Ian Blackford is leaving us soon. Born in Edinburgh in 1961, he was drawn to Scottish nationalism, joining the SNP at just 16 years old. But a career in banking soon took him to London, and he's always had a soft spot for the capital. I wanted to be a Member of Parliament. 
when I was a teenager. He was elected as an MP in 2015, beating former Lib Dem leader Charles Kennedy in a campaign marred by bullying claims and allusions to Kennedy's alcoholism. I regret that people did that. He then became the SNP's leader at Westminster in 2017, but quit last year before being ousted by Stephen Flynn. I think sometimes people want a harder nose, they want more of a spirit of independence of the group. He delivers his verdict on his political bosses, including Nicola Sturgeon. The first I knew about the campervan is when it appeared in news stories a few weeks ago. And Alex Salmond. Marmite. Do you like Marmite? No, I don't. And reveals how he inadvertently created his own nickname as the Humble Crofter. The word humble, it kind of stuck. Ian Blackford, SNP MP for Ross, Sky and Lock Harbour. Welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. So, first question, why are you leaving us? Well, that's a good question, Matt. You know, it's it's um, something I've thought about for, for some time. And, you know, to be honest, when you've been the leader of the third party in my case for six years and you step back from that, you really need to question what are you going to do? What's the contribution that you can make? And I've loved being a Member of Parliament. I've loved being a Member of Parliament for a Highland and Ireland seat. There's something special, I would say, about representing people from such a broad area. There is that sense of ownership that they have over their MP. You're there to represent them, irrespective of political party in many respects, actually. And I've never hidden the fact that as someone that's an SNP MP that wants Scotland to be independent, to be away from Westminster, I've never disrespected the place. Um, I wanted to be a Member of Parliament when I was a teenager. It was a, almost a life's ambition. And I only came into Parliament in 2015. So not that long ago in many respects, so if you look at the, the length of careers of most MPs. But I felt, as we're coming into the SNP selection contest, it was right that I signal my intent that I would be standing down at the next election to give the opportunity for others to come forward. Uh, well, we'll come on to your, your life in the Commons in, yeah. a, in a moment. Let's go right back to the beginning of your CV then. Yeah. As a teenager, you joined the SNP in the 1970s. A long time ago. But then you joined the Labour Party. Yes, when you indeed. were You've done your homework, yeah. And then you went back again. So what, were you an really indecisive young man, Ian Blackford? No, I think at that point, you know, I think... <sighs> the SNP went through a very difficult period in the early 1980s. And I was a member of the, the 79 group, which the party moved to effectively expel. And I suppose as a, as a young man, as someone who was 21 at that point, on the position of principal, I decided to leave the party. I regretted very quickly what I'd done. And I'm glad to say that in a few short years, I was back in the SNP again. You've not been tempted since? Certainly not. No, no, I think, uh, I think people these days see me as a as a party loyalist. Let's start then with, um, let me go through some of your bosses that you've had over the years. And, mm. um, I was going to ask you to sum them up in a word to start with. So let's start with, with Gordon Wilson. He was the SNP leader right back in your early days. How do you sum up, sum up Gordon Wilson in a word? Well, his nickname for many people at the time was Gale Force. Gale Force. Gale Force Gordon. And actually, Gordon's someone I had a, a great deal of affection for. He could certainly be a rather robust character. He had a very difficult job because after the 1979 election, the SNP went down from 11 to 2 seats. There, of course, had been the referendum and devolution in 1978. The SNP was in turmoil, and he was in Westminster and having to lead the party. He worked extremely hard under challenging circumstances. And I think Gordon's legacy was that he was able to sail the ship through stormy waters and get it to the camera waters that seen the, the party progress the way that it has done. Okay, he was then followed by Jim Sillers. Well, Jim... Jim, Jim, Jim in a word? Jim... Uh, Jim in a word. 
combative, I suppose, would be <laughs> would be our, our word. Like you were trying to find a polite way of saying it. Was no, it difficult? Um, Jim can be difficult, and I'm, whether he'd, he'd accept that himself. Moving on to the next SMP leader, then. A man who you could probably say did, did achieve a lot, if not all he said out to do. Alex Salmond, in a word. Alex Salmond, in a word. Um, Marmite. That's always would be the, word. The, the the word I would use for for Alec. Do you like Marmite? No, I don't. Do you <laughs> like Alex Salmond? I respect Alex's strengths and his his achievements, but I think you know we've had all the all the travails over the course of the last few years. It would be probably better that Alec kind of recognises that his his time has passed. But if he papped up the Alba shop and well united the independence movement behind the SNP. Well, I think the job of the SNP. Has is to lead the independence movement and work collegially with others. I think it's fair to say that the Alapa haven't really made any kind of electoral impact in any of the the elections that they've stood in. I wanted to ask you, Nicholas Sturgeon. Nicholas yeah. Sturgeon, in a word. In a word, Nicola. Oh gosh, a, bo- a born leader. I'll let you have two. That's words. two words. That's yeah. Okay. Nicola's someone I've known all her all her adult life. She's a very dear friend. And I'm very proud of what she has done as First Minister of Scotland. The depth of the woman, the way that she's been able to, to lead. And I think history will judge her well on the achievements that she's delivered on. What has she achieved, though? Because it was ultimately it was Alex Salmond who massively expanded the support base of the SNP, got into government, which is also where she remained. But she didn't get independence. She didn't even get a second referendum. And actually, towards the end of her time and since, we've seen the SNP going backwards. So I think if you take Nicola becoming First Minister in 2014 and then we had the Westminster election in 2015, 56 of the 59 Scottish MPs yeah. being returned SNP MPs, 49.97% of the popular vote you then run on through two Scottish elections, another two Westminster elections, European elections and so on and so forth. And I think that period has been one really of dominance of the SNP and the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, her as, her as First Minister. So I think in terms of, first and foremost, electoral success, it's been an absolutely phenomenal record that she has delivered over that well, period of question, time. To, to what end? Because you're in power anyway. There's widespread concern about the state of education in Scotland, transport. You know, most public services in Scotland have got the same problems we see elsewhere in the UK. What was the point of winning all those seats? When, as an innocent bystander in all this, it looks a bit like you spent the whole time banging on about independence and didn't change that much in Scotland. You know, we've come through a very difficult time, of course, with austerity over the course of the last, nearly going back to the financial crisis in 2008. So there's been a difficult fiscal regime to operate in. You, of course, have had everything that's happened with Brexit, with COVID and, and everything else. And I think what the government has done look at what it's done in terms of anti-poverty, look at what it's done on the child payment, for example, then I think it's used its power as well. You know, I think when people talk about education, there's been enormous change in Scottish education over the course of the last decade. We've had the national curriculum, which actually wasn't started by the, the SNP. It was started by the previous Labour Liberal Coalition government. And of course, these things take time to bed in. But I think when you look at the facts, there is a higher percentage of children in Scotland going to higher and further education than any other country in Europe. We have got some outstanding academic institutions. Well, it was under yeah. Nicholas Sturgeon, you mentioned this, under Nicholas Sturgeon, you first became an MP. Yeah. That's in 2015. Your campaign against the late Charles Kennedy was described as filthy. 
by some of your critics. Do you agree that you fought a dirty campaign against Charles Kennedy? No, I didn't. Not in any way at all. And I'll be judged on my own record. My leaflets are a, a matter of, of record. I had the utmost respect for Charles Kennedy. I'd known him for a long time. I'd met him in a number of occasions. And actually, I noticed that just the other day that Sky TV had footage of Charles and I embracing each other at the count in 2015. You know, it's very sad what happened to Charles Kennedy. You get people in politics that misbehave on all sides, unfortunately, and that always needs to be called out. And I would call it anybody that abused Charles Kennedy, but I certainly... Do you think some of your supporters did? You get people that behave badly on all sides, and I think some of the things... On your side, do people behave badly? Matt, I'll say to you that I can remember the time that we received a death threat at home during that election campaign. No, um, no, but, no, but just in terms of, do you accept that some people on your campaign? Yes, I do. I've, I've, I, 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 I have, you know, I've, as a matter of record, I've said that before, and I, I regret that people did that. If you saw some of the things that were directed at, at my campaign at that time as well, it was deeply unpleasant. And I think all of us in political life have got a responsibility to show leadership. We have a poison in our political discourse in many respects today. Social media is just awash with poison. And all of us across party have got a responsibility to behave in an appropriate manner and show leadership. Let's move on to your, your next leader then. Humza Yousaf, in a word. Hamza, Empathetic. Empathetic. He's got the worst job in politics at the moment, hasn't he? He can't get a break. Every time he wants to talk about something, along comes another police arrest. Well, you know, there's a police investigation. And, and I think there are some challenges, of, I suppose, with the way our system works and the language that's used because in order for someone to be cautioned in Scotland under oath then what happens is they have to be arrested as part of that process. You know, let's wait to see what happens at the end of this police investigation and of course Hamza has to deal with all of that and at the same time make sure he gets onto the front foot to talk about the things that he wants to do. You were the leader of the SNP in Westminster for a long time, six years, alongside Nicola Sturgeon, close ally of hers. Do you know the story behind the camper van? No. You don't know why there was a camper van? Well, look, I've seen everything that's been reported over the course of the last few months, but the first I uh, I knew about the camper van is when it appeared in news stories a few weeks ago. Are you confident that the SNP was being run properly? There's a police investigation, so let's let's get to the end of that. I think it's fair to say that what Hamza has recognised is that there needed to be a review of corporate governance. That's taking place. Corporate governance expectations have changed in all walks of life over the course of the last few years and let's make sure that we that we absolutely get this right. Is it fair to say that if in any other political party if Boris Johnson's Mm. wife was the chief executive of the Conservative Party or Keir Starmer's wife was the chief executive of the Labour Party the SNP would think that was a bit odd and make a lot of play of that. And there was a situation that Peter had been chief executive for quite some time before Nicola became first minister And I understand why people would ask questions about all of that. But let's reflect that Peter was the chief executive that delivered the electoral success that we talked about. Mm. And I think Peter deserves an awful lot of credit for that electoral success. Would you like to see Nicola stay in uh, the Scottish Parliament then for the long term? Or is there a point at which a former leader does have to step back? Like you said, you think that Alex Hammond needs to recognise that maybe there's a period to step back and be quiet. Does Nicola need to do the same? No, and I think it really does depend on circumstances and the personalities. I mean, if you think about someone like Theresa May, for example, no longer being Prime Minister, Theresa May is a very effective Member of Parliament, works hard for her constituents. She's decided that she wants to stay in Westminster. Everyone has to make their own mind up as to how they can best play a part. 
Nicola is, is a relatively young woman, and there's no doubt that whether it's in serving the cause of the SNP, of Scottish independence, or whether it's somewhere else, I suspect that there's still a big job in Nicola somewhere or other. And what that is, let's wait and see. During your time as uh, yeah. leader of the SNP in Westminster, you went up against quite a lot of Tory prime ministers. Four. Four. That's quite, you know, you could have gone through a whole six years and been up against one. No, indeed. Um, was there one that you enjoyed sparring with in the chamber the most? I enjoyed Prime Minister's question and being combative with whoever was there. They were all very different personalities. I have to say, I found Boris Johnson very frustrating because of the way that he saw the role of Prime Minister and how he behaved. So let, let me just explain that a wee bit. I will oppose the Conservative government but there are protocols that, that need to be observed. And there are times, let's take the example of, of Salisbury and Scripple. When that happened, myself, the leader of the Labour Party, would be brought in, you'd see the National Security Advisor, all the information would be shared with you. You'd need to be in that position. That was under so, Theresa May. That was under yeah. Theresa May. And that's largely been the case over the course of the last 16 months or so over Ukraine. And again, I'll credit Ben Wallace in the way that, that he has behaved. But that privilege, if you want to call it that, of being given access to information stopped when Theresa May stopped being Prime Minister. And if I give you an example of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was no intelligence briefing offered to myself or to Keir Starmer at that point. And we were expected, of course, to behave in an appropriate manner at the dispatch box. And I complained bitterly that we were expected to play a role but we're excluded from the information which is necessary for you to be able to perform the, the job that you need to do. And I think there was that thing with Boris, and it didn't matter who you were, if you were not one of Boris's friends in the Conservative Party, so those of the Conservative Party that weren't on side with him, all the opposition parties, the devolved administrations, the, the overseas territories, the Crown dependencies, we were all the enemy. And we were treated as such. And I found that very, very difficult to come to terms with because there are times where you do actually have to work together. Governments have to do that. The devolved administrations have to do that. And it was extremely difficult with Boris. You say you have to respect the protocols and so on. You've actually got thrown out of the House of Commons on several occasions. In 2018, in a row over Brexit legislation again last year, after you repeatedly said that Boris Johnson had misled the House, which is basically... Well, I wasn't wrong about that, was it? Well, you were basically talked <laughs> about it to accuse him of being a liar. Did yeah. you do that deliberately? Because you knew sometimes the SNP needs a bit of attention, causing a fuss and getting thrown out is the best way of doing it? Actually, no. Um, <laughs> and, I, and again, I understand why you, why you put that question. I'd, I'd said that Boris Johnson had misled the House, I said he was a liar. I didn't feel I could retract that. I mean, I think language is important. I mean, I talked earlier about respect in, in our political discourse. But we need to find a way that we can hold politicians to account when it's right to do so. And the behaviour of the Prime Minister, it was right to do that. But perhaps the House of Commons needs to look at its rules about how we can do that. And then do you think you should be able to say in the House of Commons, that was a lie? Yes, but I think you need to be sparing in how you can do that. Let's talk about when you, an interesting process of when you both became leader in the, of the SNP in Westminster hmm. and your departure. You beat Joanna Cherry very, it was very close to become the leader. Do you sometimes think about that sliding doors moment about what would have happened if she'd got it instead? <laughs> no, I don't actually. Yeah, I, think I imagine she might think of, about that slightly more than well, you Oh, perhaps. <laughs> I, think, I think some of the reporting about the margin of victory is actually a bit misplaced. So what happened at the end? Well, I think it was known that there may be a challenge coming my way at the annual meeting of the group. I have to be re-elected every year, and I had been re-elected every year since 2017. 
funnily enough, I actually had a conversation with one of our MPs just last night, and we both agreed that if I'd stood for election, that I would have won that. We will never know. I believe I would have done. But I recognise that there were a number of MPs that, quite frankly, probably wanted my backside off the front bench. Why do you think that was? Why did Stephen Flynn and his supporters want you out? You know, one of the things I've said through the course of the interview, Matt, is that I saw my role as working with the Scottish Government. I will argue my case vociferously with the government, but I'll behave, I hope, in a respectful manner with the government and with other MPs. I think sometimes people want a harder nose, they want more of a spirit of independence of the group. They want no quarter given in the relationships with the governing party. Well, that, like, that's, that's a choice that people can make. How do you think he's doing that? I think he's doing fine. I mean, he, he has a different style to, to me. I he think keeps he's putting his hands in his pockets. That well, seems yeah. the most outrageous thing in the House of Commons. Well, look, <laughs> I mean, he, he has to develop his own, his own style and his own image, and I think he's doing that. His questions are perhaps a bit shorter than mine. But, uh, <laughs> Prime you worry about that. You occasionally were, were criticised for being a bit verbose. Is that fair in the Commons? Yeah, perhaps. I think Stuart MacDonald, in an article he wrote for the, the Scotsman newspaper, said that my speeches could often be as long as my uh, commute from the north of Skye. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the way that I prepared for Prime Minister's questions, I had a number of people in the room. I had my chief of staff, I had my head of comms, my head of digital, my policy advisor. And I'd always sort of say, look, here's what I want to do this week. Here's the idea. And they would kind of craft something together. And... Uh, there are times I would often think that the the questions may have been a bit on the long side, but often it was necessary to do that to to get the point across yeah. that we that we wanted to do. So no, I don't I don't necessarily do yeah. that. I need to ask you about the simple crofter. Uh, this tag which is always yeah. attached to you. How mm. simple a crofter are you? Well I'm a crofter. Yes. Um so I can remember how that came about. When I was elected in, in 2015, I, I got a call from the Whip's office on the first day of the Queen's speech to say, Ian, could you give your maiden speech tomorrow? And, I mean, of course, I suppose to some extent you've thought about what you want to say in your first speech, but I hadn't really got to the point of committing anything to, to print. So I had to, to work very quickly. And one of the things I wanted to reflect on, that I was the first Member of Parliament to live in the Isle of Skye since the Baron of Glenelg in 1833, and what I did say in that speech was that he owned the Waterless Estate. I, on the other hand, owned the Humble Croft. So, on reflection, maybe I, I shouldn't you have used the word. Selfie. I should. I know. Indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, mea culpa. So, I probably shouldn't have used in the context of that the word humble. I guess it kind of, it kind of stuck. It stuck from then. But yeah, yeah, I've got this strange life in some respects because I'm down here during the week and at the weekends I'm back home assisting my wife who's got the main responsibility and I do put up pictures of lambing and her polytunnel and the things that we grow and all the rest of it so it's a kind of it's a strange world it's a strange world of life I know and I'm looking forward to being able to spend a bit more time back there I wondered what you've liked but perhaps more importantly disliked about the job of being an MP well, look, I've, I've loved being an MP and the opportunity that I've had to, to serve the people of Roskai of Lacan and Lacabra. It takes its toll. Number-wise, I've probably got a relatively small constituency. It's 54,000 electors, although it's, it's the biggest in the whole of the United Kingdom. It's hard to get around. Oh, goodness gracious. I do surgeries in 32 places. So in the summer, I spend three weeks where I basically travel. And 
I remember the first year I did get into trouble with IPSA because I said, why are you staying in hotels in your constituency? I said, well, yeah, because they're, in my case, hundreds of miles away. And I would, I would leave on a Monday and get back on a Friday. So it was like being in Westminster, except you're, you're going around You're never your leaving your own constituency. Yeah. I suppose I do have to ask you, where we are right now then, 2023, when is Scotland going to be independent? And how many years do you think the cause has been set back by police investigation, leadership yeah. change? Yeah, so... We've been at this a long time. Yeah. The SNP was formed, or the modern SNP was formed in 1934. Well, there was a merger of two parties. And, of course, the big breakthrough came in Hamilton in 1967. Winnie Ewing just passed away the last few days. Billy Wolfe, in his book, talked about the ebb and the flows. And I've admitted that we're going through a challenging period. Matt, I really believe very strongly that we've got to get on to the economic case for independence. We've got to show how we can deliver that stronger economy, how we can deliver a wealthier but a fairer Scotland as well, really have that debate and I'm looking forward to doing that over the course of the, the coming period. I'm not arguing that any of that is, is easy. I'll Obviously next year will be 10 years since the independence referendum. Yeah. Will it be another 10 years before Scotland's independent? I hope not. I hope it can happen before that but we have to set the circumstances where people have the confidence and want to complete that journey. And all this debate about process, if those that live in Scotland are expressing a very clear view that they want Scotland to be an independent country, then it will happen. And if next year there's a general election mm. and Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, mm. doesn't that kill the argument about Scottish independence for a really long time? There'll no. be more, more, the SNP will have probably have gone backwards in the number of MPs in Scotland, the get the t- nasty Tories out argument that the SNP absolutely loves will have gone. It's going to be much, much harder mounting that argument if nice, boring, left-wing Keir Starmer's Prime Minister, isn't it? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, obviously, the SNP has got to get its tactics right for the, the election next year, and the polls today are the polls today. I accept all of that. And I think what people are expressing throughout the United Kingdom is they want change. Okay, so what is the SNP offer in the context of that change? We have to be able to get our core vote out when it comes to that election. The polls are showing that there's been some slippage towards Labour over the recent past. We need to connect with those that have expressed some desire to vote for Keir Starmer. And we need really, I think, to do a couple of things. One is to say, look, if you really want change, and if you want to make sure that the Tories are locked out, not just for one election, but for good, then the way to do that is to deliver Scottish independence. But secondly, remember what Labour are seeking to do at the moment, and that is to deliver what is Brexit. Brexit has had an enormous cost for people in Scotland, I would argue, right across the United Kingdom. And we need to remind people that Labour are not going to take us back into the single market and the customs union, not going to give us the freedom of movement that we need in order to get the workforce that we need for our hospitality industry and others, for example. So there's a clear dividing line there. But we need to talk about what we want to do, what is the positive message of independence. And in that sense, Keir Starmer has no answer to that question. So finally then, Ian Bradford, in your exit interview, what are you going to do next? I don't know. I've obviously got my role as the SNP's business ambassador, so I'll do that. And Hamza has said that he wants me to assist in that work. I still have a number of years in me, so let's wait and see. I want to get through the next 15, 18 months that I'm still in Parliament. I'm not going to accept external positions in the short term. Before I came into Parliament, I, I ran a consultancy business. I had a number of non-executive directorships. I may look at doing some of these things again. I've but delighted to say that the Prime Minister just yesterday appointed me to the Committee of Standards and Public Life, so that's a fixed three-year appointment. 
that'll take up some time. So there'll be, I think there are things I can do, hopefully, where I can use my talents to help in, in public life. But that's the best way to see it. You, well, you might start missing Parliament if you're not an MP. Well, the SNP has a, has a position that we don't accept appointments to the... Oh, they could, you make an exception for you. You like you like being a parliament. <laughs> of course, I like parliament, but we don't. You know, we don't. We don't. We don't subscribe to an unelected chamber. I would take the view that you do need a second chamber. I think it should be reformed. But so we'll wait and see. Wait and see. Ian Blackford, very best of luck to it. Thanks so much for joining us on your exit interview. Thank you. series of the exit interviews speak to MPs from across all parties who've said they're standing down at the next election. You can catch up on all of the previous episodes just by searching the exit interviews wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to catch me, Times Radio, 10 o'clock weekdays. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>